8. As we are going through the Psalms on Sunday night, and Psalm 98 is a, is a uh, we, it says to sing and to praise the Lord who reigns. So it's a song of praise to the Lord who reigns. Now the emphasis in this section is on the Jewish people and the wonderful new demonstration of God's power they had seen. It was so great that it demanded that a new song be sung by his people. The picture of God as a warrior, it bothers some people. And particularly those who seem to forget that a holy God cannot compromise with sin. God does not compromise with sin. In Exodus 15.3, listen how it describes God. The Lord God is a man of war. The Lord is his name. In Psalm 144.1, the psalmist said, Blessed be the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. It's Isaiah 59.17 and 18. It says, For he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. It's, it's describing you know, the armor of a warrior. You can read that in Ephesians chapter 6. Um, so this is the fullest description of the Lord as a warrior. Now the cross of Christ not only says that God loves sinners, but also that God hates and opposes sin. Think of it. God hates and opposes sin so much that he allowed his son to die upon the cross, a horrible death. And because God is a spirit, he doesn't have a body. So the references to his hands and arms are obviously symbolic. Now, what was it that God did for Israel? Well, what God did for Israel was a witness to the Gentile nations, that is, those that didn't know God. And, a, and he was a powerful demonstration of his faithfulness to his covenant and his love for his chosen people. But the writer here, no doubt, was looking beyond just some local victory there in the area of Israel or the surrounding area because he wrote about the witness of this event to the nations in verse 2. Also to the earth in verses 3, 4, and 9, and to the whole world in verse 7 and 9. So it appears that the psalm points ahead to the return of Jesus Christ. Now, Psalm 98 is another one of the royal psalms, that is Psalms 93 through 99. It is a high-spirited psalm of praise. And this psalm shares the same joy that we saw recorded in Psalm 96, where it said again, Sing to the Lord a new song. The outline is as follows. First, a call to praise God as, as the Savior in verses 1 through 3. Second, a call to praise God as the king in verses 4 through 6. And third, a call to praise God as the coming judge in verses 7 through 9. The theme is a song of joy and victory because God is victorious over evil. All those who follow him will be victorious with him when he judges the earth. The author, unknown. But this psalm tells us about the subject of the Lord's great battle. And the psalmist probably had some special event in the history of God's people in mind when he wrote this. Some great victory that was given to them. But his words here bring, out, uh, bring to our thoughts God's spiritual victories. A lot bigger and greater victories than any that Israel ever knew. So let's begin now with Psalm 98 verses 1 through 3. 
And the psalmist says, O sing to the Lord a new song. Here's why. For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have gained him the victory. The Lord has made known his salvation. His righteousness he has revealed in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his mercy and his faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So this is a psalm of praise that's looking forward to the coming of God to rule his people. Jesus fulfilled this expectation when he came to save all people from their sins. And he's going to come again to judge the world. God is both perfectly loving and he's perfectly just. And the two go together. God could not be loving if he wasn't just. It's like a parent. We love our children, but we spank them, don't we? Or we discipline them. Why? Because we love them. We can't allow sin. God doesn't uh, allow sin. God is merciful when he punishes, and he overlooks no sin when he loves. Praise him. Praise him for his promise to save you and to come back again. Now, hear the words marvelous. All right? The words marvelous things. These words are used to describe exactly that. God does marvelous things. The marvelous things that God does in the Bible. That's what he's proclaiming here. The right hand mentioned here, the right hand of the Lord, is a way of referring to his great salvation of Israel from Egypt when he delivered them from bondage. And the phrase marvelous things is kind of like a slogan for the Lord's redemption. In Psalm 118, 15, and 16, we read the voice of... Uh, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. Then in, he did it in sight of the nations, it says. You see, God's salvation was designed to be a witness to the nations. Just as our salvation is designed to reach out and be a witness to the unsaved. God didn't save us just to sit. He saved us to serve. He saved us to witness. He saved us to tell people about Jesus Christ. They need him. They need deliverance from their sin and the bondage of it and the bondage of sin and death. So again, the, 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 the psalmist here is asking the house of Israel to praise him as Savior in verse 3. Again, speaking of deliverance, because God has remembered them. And to praise him probably for some great deliverance of the people by God. Now, we don't know what that great deliverance was. But some think it might have been when God delivered them from the Babylonian captivity and then took them back to their own land. But one thing is for sure. Deliverance was some kind of victory. Their deliverance was some kind of victory. Now, the word salvation occurs in each of the first three verses, and it includes the idea of victory, and that's the way it's translated in verse 1 in the King James Version. His right hand and his holy arm have gotten him the victory. Again, that's verse 1 in the old King James. And it's because of this new act of deliverance or this new victory that the people are, are again, uh, asked to sing a new song to God. And it's probably a good thing that we don't know what this deliverance is. Because many times we spend so much time uh, on things that, that we don't know about. We speculate, we guess, we, we, we form opinions, and we spend a whole lot of time on things that we don't know about, rather than a lot more times on the things that we do know about. 
And it's a lot more important for us to think about deliverance in terms of the victories that God has provided for us through Jesus Christ. Now, the New Testament speaks about three kinds of deliverance. Three kinds of deliverance. First, there's deliverance from sin. The deliverance from sin. Now, this is the biggest and greatest problem that we have. Sin. Sin. We have sin in this world. We have sin in our life. The greatest problem is sin. It's definitely not a lack of self-esteem because we love ourselves to death. You know, it's not a lack of accomplishment or anything else. It is sin. Because you see, sin separates. It separates from others and, and more importantly, it separates us from God and it destroys. Sin ruins people. We read what the psalmist said in Psalm 66, 18. If I regard iniquity in my heart, notice the Lord will not hear. It separates us from God. It breaks our communication with him. Psalm 18, 41. They cried out, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, because he did not answer them. We read in Isaiah 1 and 2. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. In, in, in Isaiah 1.4, Isaiah said, Alas, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity. And then in Psalm, uh, Isaiah 1.15, he says, When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make prayers, I will not hear you. Because sin separates us from God. And God is the cause of all good. Sin destroys individuals, sin destroys relationships, and in due time, it will bring us to that final place of separation, which is hell and be lost, again, if we don't come to Christ. Now, who can save us from sin? Can money save us from sin? No. Can my works save me from sin? No. Can my membership to some church save me from sin? No. Can the world save us from sin? No. We look to the world... But we can't find any help there. Think about it. The world can't even solve its own problems, much less mine. And even if it could, this would be nothing in terms of deliverance from the punishment of God, which each of us deserve for our many transgressions of God's law and the harm that we've done to other people because of our sins. Psalm 49, 6-9 says this, those who trust in their wealth and boast about all their wealth cannot in any, way, uh, in any way redeem his brother, nor give to God ransom for him. For, they, for the redemption of their souls notice, is costly. Costly. All you have to do is look at the cross and you'll see what it costs the Father and the Son to pay for our sins. And it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit. No other human being can redeem us. No one. Now, in the slave market of the old world, a slave had to be redeemed. In other words, somebody had to pay the price in order for them to be set free. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. He paid for us. He redeemed us through the cross, through his shed blood. In Mark chapter 10, verse 45, Ephesians 1, 7, and in Hebrews 9, 12, we learn there that Jesus paid that price so that we could be set free from the slavery of sin and in order to start a new life with Christ, new creatures in Christ. There's no way for a person to earn or buy eternal life. And there's nobody good enough to receive eternal life. Only God can redeem a soul. 
So we can't count on wealth and physical comforts to keep us happy because you'll never have enough wealth to keep you from dying. We can't help ourselves either. If we could conquer sin, we'd do it. But we can't. We see Paul in Romans chapter 7 talking about that struggle. He says, I I, I want to do right, and I know I'm supposed to do right, but there's some greater force in me that, that, that makes me do wrong. He had that battle with sin, and we will have that battle with sin until the day we die. And that's why we need to read, we need to pray, we need to be uh, in fellowship. We need, you know, again, that that fellowship of the Lord to have victory over sin. Because it's going to be there until the day we die and we're in our glorified body. There's no way that we can conquer sin. Again, we read in Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, Romans 7, 21 through 24, the verses I was just talking about. Again, uh, sin lives in us and it drags us down. And I said, Paul struggled with it. And here's what he was crying. He says, when I want to do good, evil is right there with me. And he said, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Notice he said who, not what. It takes a person, the person of Jesus Christ. And verse 25 gives us the answer. In Romans 7, uh, verse 7, 25 gives us the answer. When Paul said, who will deliver me from this body of death? He goes, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the one, the only one. Secondly, there's the deliverance from sin. The first one was the deliverance from from sin. All right, the three types of deliverances. The second one here is deliverance from death, of which we're all going to experience unless we make it up in the rapture. Death is a great and dreaded enemy. And many people, even Christians, fear this last dreaded enemy. But you see, even though we're appointed to die once, we look forward to the resurrection, our resurrection from the dead because of the victory over death by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We read in 2 Timothy 1.10, but by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, notice, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. When it says that Jesus abolished death, the word abolished means to render inoperable. Jesus rendered death inoperable. It doesn't work for the believer anymore. We have been set free from death, that last dreaded enemy. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul wrote about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he said, if Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless. You'd be here for nothing tonight if Christ had not risen from the dead. Paul said, and your faith is useless. And all of us apostles will all be lying about God. If he hadn't resurrected because we have said that God raised Christ from the dead or from the grave. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. So if that's true, all who have died believing in Christ, they're lost. And if our hope in Christ is only in this life, he said we are more to be pitied than anybody else in the world. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Thank God. Then Paul finished that letter in 1 Corinthians uh, by saying, Death has been swallowed up in victory. 1 Corinthians 15, 54. And then he says in uh, verse 57, And he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah said in Isaiah 25, 8, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. 
Because you see, of Christ's victory over death, we don't have to fear death any longer. But live our lives obediently and to the fullest, knowing that when we die, we will be with Jesus. Because Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The moment we close our eyes here, the next time we open them, we'll be looking at Christ. That's going to be such an amazing moment, you know, in eternity. Again, closing our eyes here and then opening them in heaven. You see, we can't be threatened by death. We can't be hurt by death. Death only promotes us. It takes us to the kingdom. Then the third deliverance is deliverance from Satan and his power. And in Genesis 3.15, we have the first mention of the gospel. And we're told there that when Jesus comes, he's going to defeat Satan. Genesis 3.15 says, He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He being Jesus, he, Jesus, will crush your head, Satan, and you, Satan, will will strike his heel. Hey, he'll be struck in the head. That's a death blow. But he'll strike Christ's heel, which is not a, a blow of death. And that's exactly what happened to Jesus That's exactly what Jesus did at the cross, I should say. He defeated Satan. Even though Satan wounded him, again, on the hill, and it was temporary in the process, the atonement broke the power of Satan, of sin and death, which was the power of sin and death. We read in 1 John 3, verses 7-9, through John said, Little children, let no one deceive you. He who practices righteous, uh, righteousness is righteous, just as he, that is Christ, is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And notice, for this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. That's why Christ came, to save us, to destroy us from the works of the devil, from the power of the devil. Jesus' victory over Satan enables us to be conquerors as well. Paul said even more than conquerors. Because in the power of Christ, we don't have to fear Satan. We don't have to fear death. We don't have to, you know, fear sin because of the power of Christ. As long as we're submitting to God, the Bible says. James 4, 7 through 8. Submit to God, resist the devil, and the devil will flee from you. Many times when I hear that scripture quoted, it leaves out submitting to God. It'll say, oh, just resist the devil and he will flee from you. No, I need to submit to God in obedience, in faithfulness, in the word, in prayer. I need to to be what God has called me to be. Then I can resist the devil and he will flee from you. We saw that in Matthew chapter 4. When when Satan was tempting Christ in the wilderness, Satan came at Jesus with all these temptations. And every time Jesus gave him what the word he was submitted to the Father. Therefore, when he gave him the word, Satan, Satan finally had to flee at the end. But he'll be back. He said he, flew, he, he, he fled, but he will be back. He came back and tempted Jesus in other ways. And you know what? He'll flee from us. We'll have that victory. But you know what? We've got to keep doing the same thing. So when he comes back, we'll continue to have the victory. He will flee. Revelation 15 says, John says, I saw something like a glass, a sea of glass mingled with fire and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image. So again, we need to be in Christ that we will have the victory over Satan. Verses four through six. 
The psalmist says, Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth in song, rejoice and sing praises. Sing to the Lord with the harp, with the, uh, with the harp, with the harp and the sound of a psalm. With trumpets and the sound of a horn, shout, jo- shout joyfully before the Lord, the King. So here, the psalmist is calling for all the earth to praise God as King. Not just the people of Israel, the whole earth. The, the, the whole earth is to praise God. Now, we've seen this call to praise God in other psalms. And the call to praise God and to worship God should be a joyful and above all loud worship. And when I say loud, I don't mean, you know, getting out of hand and acting crazy. But I'm sure God doesn't get blessed out of us just singing real low and like we don't want God to hear us. We should be singing to God in, in a loud voice because of what is going on inside. Again, picture and try to hear the worship service that's described in Second Chronicles 29, verses 29 through 30, 25 through 30. Let me read it to you. King Hezekiah then stationed the Levites at the temple of the Lord with cymbals and harps and lyres, which is another type of heart. It says he obeyed all the commands that the Lord had given to King David through God, the king seer, and the prophet Nathan. The Levites then took their positions around the temple with their instruments of David. And the priests took their positions with the trumpets. And then Hezekiah ordered that the burnt offering be placed on the altar. As the burnt offering was presented, notice, songs of praise to the Lord were begun accompanied by the instruments and other instruments of David, the king of Israel, and the entire assembly. Notice, the whole assembly worshipped the Lord as the singers sang and the trumpets blew until all the burnt offerings were finished. Then the king and everyone with him bowed down in worship. What an awesome worship service is is being described there. And you know what? The Hebrew Psalms... They became famous throughout the whole world. Even their brutal conquerors recognized the inspiration and the beauty of the Hebrew temple music. You know, one time by the waters of Babylon when they were in captivity, the enemy urged the Hebrews because they, again, these Hebrew temple songs, they were well known even in the heathen nations. And so the, the, Hebrew, the, the Babylonian enemy, they urged the Hebrews, hey, sing one of those songs of Zion. But what they didn't know was how impossible it was for the captives, the Hebrews, to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. And when I read that, it, it, it spoke to me in the sense, I need to be in the place with the Lord where I am able to sing those songs of praise. You know, when I'm not walking with God and I'm not in the will of God and, and I'm doing my own thing, hey, it, it's hard to sing psalms of praise. Matter of fact, I don't even want to sing psalms of praise. But the Hebrews, they were in captivity. They weren't in their homeland. And it was very hard for them to sing these songs of praise. And for 16 years, no song had been heard in the sacred temple. Ahaz had shut the doors. He scattered the Levites. He allowed the holy temple to stay uncared for. There were no lights on and it was not used for 16 years. There were no sacrifices on the altar. There was no sweet incense in the holy place. And the sweet incense are, are, are represent prayer. Can you imagine that? That's what happens when we don't pray. It, it's just a, a terrible feeling. 
You know, and, and so we see this here, that the, the, the temple wasn't being used, the lights weren't on, there was no incense of prayer that were going up to the Lord. The doors to enter into fellowship, they were closed. Now, outwardly, the ordinances of the religious life were protected, but inwardly, there was nothing but silence and darkness. And that's where dark thoughts begin to come in. Weeds had grown over the court of the holy place. The song of the Lord had died in their heart and in their life. Now, why shouldn't this miserable condition be ended today? Why shouldn't you? Why shouldn't anyone be cleansed from the signs of sin and neglect through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? The neglect and sin should be cleansed through the blood of Christ. Why shouldn't we come back into fellowship with God when he's waiting to receive us and he's waiting to forgive us? Surrender. We need to surrender to him and we need to do it immediately. And you know, we, we can't be vague in our commitment to him anymore. We need to commit to him. We need to do something. And as you surrender yourself to Christ, and then, uh, then all of those who need, and for anyone that needs you, when you do that for Christ's sake, you'll find the song of the Lord in your heart. You'll find it break out. Singing will break out in your heart again. You know, kind of like a stream that, that was previously blocked up with all kinds of debris. When that sin and neglect, when that debris is, is moved out, then that, that, that flow of the life of God will begin to move out. It will flow outward. And those songs of joy, those songs of the Lord and rejoice will burst forth from you once again. Amen. Listen to Ezekiel 3, 10 through 13. It said, When the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, the priests put on their robes and took their places to blow their trumpets. And the Levites, the descendants of Asaph, clashed their cymbals to praise the Lord, just as King David had prescribed. With praise and thanks, they sang this song to the Lord. He is so good. His faithful love for Israel endures forever. Then all the people gave a great shout, praising the Lord because the foundation of the Lord's temple had been laid. Many of the older priests and Levites and other leaders remembered the first temple and they wept aloud when they saw the new temple's foundation. The others, however, were shouting for joy. The joyful shouting and weeping mingled together in a loud commotion that could be heard far in the distance. You know, I, I would love for these neighbors around here to sing, hear us when we sing praises to the Lord. And I remember one time that happened. Just one time. They came from across the street and said, hey man, you guys are too loud. And we said, praise the Lord. But because, you know, <laughs> but because we are believers, we, we did bring it down because we wanted to be good neighbors. But that's a blessing. That was a compliment. For somebody to complain, hey, you guys are singing too loud. It's 7 o'clock in the morning. What do you guys got to sing about that early in the morning? Well, if you came in, you'd find out. But again, that's the kind of exuberance. That's the kind of praise. It wasn't that we were trying to be noisy. Just singing to the Lord with all of your heart. You, you wouldn't be able to help but be loud. So should the way that we worship our God today be any less lively than what we heard described in these passages of Scripture? I mean, should we be quiet when we've come to know him who is the great king of kings, the king above all kings, and the great Lord above all lords, the Lord of lords? 
I mean, when, when we... When we see these kinds of worship services in the scriptures, you know, shame on us for, for, for all of the unexciting and dull and lifeless and uninspiring worship and our, and our half-hearted praise. I, I don't know if God is, you know, I don't know if he's blessed and rejoices at, at half-hearted praise. You know, again, it... it the scripture teaches us to sing vigorously and boldly to the Lord and be concerned. You know, uh, I, I, am I singing as if I was, you know, bored or asleep? Lift up, we need to lift up our voice with power and strength. And you know what? Don't be afraid of being heard singing out loud. Don't be worried about what your neighbor thinks about your voice. God wants to hear it. And you know, when, when, when you're at home and, and, and you're in a good mood and, and just everything is just moving right along, you know, people sing and people, oh, wow, you're happy today. Yeah, you know, just I feel so good and everything's, you know, great. And how much more? It, again, it, it, singing is an expression. It's a sign of what's going on inside. And you know, we should be the most joyous people in the whole world. Singing all the time because of what our great God has done for us. Again, we shouldn't be afraid of singing to the Lord. Any more than you weren't afraid to sing out songs to the devil when you were in the world. And boy, when, in them old days when we, you know, we might have had some stimulation going on there. We'd sing and get crazy with those songs that, that, we, that we liked. We weren't afraid to be heard, and we weren't afraid that anybody saw. How many times you see somebody in the car driving, and they're just singing, and they're just jumping? I mean, we see it all the time. They don't care who sees them. How many times has an you know you you've you've heard a song that that was you know back in the high school days? You've been out of high school 30, 40 years. I know I have, and I hear a song, and I can chime in as if I had heard that song. Just, uh, you know, I hadn't heard it for 30, 40 years, but I can chime in and sing that song word for word and not miss a beat. But I can't remember the praise song that I just sang last Sunday. We should know God's praise song. We should know the songs. We should know his word in that manner. Obviously, not all of us were born with good singing voices. <laughs> But you know what? I'm sure it doesn't, it, 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 it doesn't bother God. He gave me that terrible singing voice. But I can still use it to sing for him. And, you know, it, 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 I'm sure it doesn't, you know, it doesn't bother him. I, I may sing out of tune or offbeat. But you know what? What's coming from my heart is being expressed through those vocal cords. And if my heart is full of thanksgiving to God and praise, and our voices are being lifted up to him in sincerity, that's what God looks at. That's what God loves. Sincerity. He doesn't care about my bad voice. He cares about sincerity. Verses 7 through 9. 
Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers, notice, clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord. He's talking about the creation praising him. Verse nine, uh, verse nine uh, let the hills be joyful together, verse 9, before the Lord, for he is coming. Notice, for he's coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He shall judge the world and the peoples with iniquity. The psalmist now is calling for all of creation to praise God. And to worship God as judge. And I was remembering a song in the early days of Calvary Chapel that we used to sing. I remember the tune. Some of the words were the birds in the trees. They, they sing to the Lord. And the trees lift their arms to the Lord. It was an awesome praise song about creation praising God. And that's what the psalmist is doing here. He's calling up all of creation to praise and to worship God as judge. Because he's coming to rule the earth and to judge sin. Now in Canaanite thinking, the sea... Okay, the psalmist is calling, you know, again, uh, to, to, to praise the word and to, to the Lord and to worship. He says that, um, again, the rivers will clap their hands and the hills will uh, be joyful together. Now, in Canaanite thinking, which is heathen thinking, the sea represented a dark deity. To the heathen, the sea represented an idol, a dark deity, a god. But in the Psalms, the sea is a part of creation that God completely controls. We see that in Psalm 93. The clapping of the hands of the rivers and the rejoicing of the hills here, it represents the praise of creation at the time God establishes his kingdom on the earth. When the kingdom of the earth is established, everything's going to go back to, when they have the new heaven and earth, everything's going to go back to the way God had planned it to be. Verse 9 says he's coming. Along with Psalm 96, 13, Creation answers the call for justice found at many places in the Psalms. The coming of the judge is a reason for joy because finally the Lord's going to put an end to cruelty, to evil, and to injustice. And the reason being that God is coming to judge the earth, verse 9 says, With righteousness he shall judge the world and the people's uh, iniquity. He's going to judge with fairness. I should say he's going to judge with equity. The psalm ends by looking forward to that still future day when all of the problems of this old suffering world are going to be made right. And we know this is the day of the return of Jesus Christ. The joyful but still future for uh, future uh, freeing of the earth is going to take place and it's going to join in praise to God. It's explained more by Paul in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 24, where he says, you know, the earth is groaning. But what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory that he's going to give us later. Listen to what it says in, in um, well, I didn't write down the scripture verse, but I know you Bible scholars will know it now. It's, it's Romans, but I don't have the exact verse here. It says, for all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, everything on earth was subjected to God's curse. All creation anticipates the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For you know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And even we Christians, although we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, also groan to be released from pain and suffering. We too wait anxiously for that day. <clears throat> When God will give us our full rights as his children, including the new bodies he has promised us. Now that we are saved, we eagerly look forward to this freedom. Remember, when, when sin came in, when Adam fell, the earth was cursed. And that's why, you know, we see earth today, the creation is not what it was meant to be. 
because of sin. You see, sin affects everything. In these verses that we just read, Paul is giving nature a kind of humanness with feelings and, and, and other char- human characteristics. Now, God does, uh, the, Paul doesn't mean that, that nature has personal feelings like we do. He's saying only that nature isn't yet all that God has preordained it to be, and in a way, it's waiting now to be fulfilled. This is what the psalmist is suggesting here, that the earth is not what it was preordained to be, and we're waiting for it now to be what God preordained it to be. The way Christians look at nature is totally different than the way the world looks at nature. Now, the world either deifies nature and, and, and even worships it. Or, you know, we see how, oh, God is in a tree. No, he's not. He created the tree. But you have those that, you know, that they, 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 you know they'll, they'll form circles around. Now, I'm not against trees, but don't get the right. But you see them, they'll, they'll lay their life on the line because a tree is going to be cut down. I mean, it comes to worshiping it at some point, you know, and, and you know, they come to look at, at, at God in, in nature, uh, and some people think it's, it's worse to do harm to the environment or endangered species than it is to bore babies. I mean, you know, this is me. I see this late night commercial, and again, I'm not against animals. It's in the context that we're talking about. That, that, that to, to save these dogs from cruelty, and they should be, and they, you, know, you get to pay so much, you get a T-shirt, you get the, all you know these little goodies. And and we've we've come to the place, and I remember an old Steve Taylor song. And unless you're around my age, you're not going to remember who Steve Taylor is. He used to be a lot of the exit festivals that that Pastor Rawl had at uh, Calvary Chapel, Golden Springs, but he was real popu- popular at the time. But I'll never forget these lyrics in the song that he sang. He said, we, we save the whales, we save the seals, we save everything that's cute and squeals, but we kill that thing that's in the womb. We would not want no baby boom. But we've gotten to that place of it's furry and it's cute and it squeals. It's become more important than, than, than human beings. And we, do, we make every effort to, to you know, pamper and, and, you know, they have animal psychiatrists and animal, animal cemeteries. And, and, I mean, again, it's in the context that we're looking at. It, nature has now, and, and, and the animals have become almost more important than human beings have. But understand, this is God's world. You know, the world thinks of nature as evolving towards perfection along with the human race, which is so wrong. We're not evolving. Now, this is God's world. He made it. It's his. It belongs to him. So, that means, yes, we do have to respect it and all the, 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 the creation life, the animal life. Yes, he made it. We are to respect it. We're not to abuse it. We must treat it with care. The world isn't what it was, you know, created to be. Again, I, I mentioned it's been subjected to troubles because of God's judgment on fallen man in the garden. It's been subjected to bondage and decay, according to what Paul said in Romans. Again, because of sin. But thank God that the world is going to be renewed one day, according to God's promise. 
We're looking and we're waiting for, as 2 Peter 3.13, new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. John said in Revelation 21, 1 through 4, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, the one that we're living in. Also, there was no more sea. Well, bummer for fishermen and boaters and all those guys, but, you know, no more sea. John says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more deaths, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, because the former things have passed away. Thank God. And when this happens, it says there in verse 8, the rivers will clap their hands and the hills will be joyful and all will praise the Lord. Father, thank you for this beautiful psalm, God. And Father, it is a psalm that speaks of singing to the Lord praises for his, again, for his salvation and his judgment, God. And Lord, may, us, may we get back to true praise and to true worship, God. In other words, Lord, let it not be the, uh, the formality that we might think it is before the teaching. Worship is a part of the worship service. All parts of the service are worship to you. The singing, the teaching, the giving of our tithes and offerings, all of that is worship. It's all the worship service. So, Father, help us to understand that everything that we do in here is to worship you, God. It all, it's all about you and nothing else, God. And, Father, just, again, help us to, again, get back to the basics, Lord. The old southern preacher Vance Havner used to say, we're singing about the promises when we're really just standing on the premises. And how true it is, God. We just go through the formalities, God. We, we, we pick our spot. We hear the word, and then we go about our business, God. Lord, help us, God, to take the word of God and put it into our lives, God. Father, help us to transform the way we live by what we hear, God. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, man, that's your greatest need right now. The worship team's going to lead us in a song of worship. And this time is for you. You know, if the Holy Spirit has spoken to your heart tonight about your need for salvation, your need from, for deliverance from sin and death, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat. You make your way towards the steps up front. I'll meet you there. And when the song's over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.